Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Welcome to Headliner Radio, Joshua Bell. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you. Where are we talking to you from today? Outside of New York City in uh, sort of Westchester County, in the woods on a lake with no neighbors and just a wonderful place to kind of relax and be secluded. And so how are you coping with the whole you know, lockdown situation at the moment? Because it sounds like you've got a pretty peaceful home and home environment. Um, it's a complicated, uh, I guess complicated, because I, it's a mix of many, many emotions. It seems to change every day. <laughs> I've gone through yeah. periods of being extremely scared, and uh, I got sick a little bit for a while. I thought maybe I had the virus, and I got, actually got tested and waited a couple of days and my whole family was tested um we came out negative so that was okay. that was um but even that was complicated because i had mild symptoms and i thought maybe it's better if i'm positive and that i've survived it you know and so but um i've had some very awful things you know i, I had a, a, a friend of mine uh, and a member of my orchestra who passed away from the virus um, oh, i'm so sorry um, to hear he, that yeah I, he had some underlying, he's a young guy, but he was, had some underlying conditions that made him more prone, and I was worried about him, and sure enough, he did contract, the, contracted, and he's in, and, and so that's been very tragic, and I've, uh, so it's been a lot of very tough, tough moments. Um, at the same time, on, on other, and there have been, basically what I've been looking for is silver linings. I think we all should be, you know, concentrating on those because there are some for, certainly for me, I know some people are suffering so much, so much more than I am. So I'm constantly waking up and thinking, you know, um, the evidence for some of the uh, advantages I've had and, 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 um, and for my health every day. Mm. Um, but I've actually found things that are uh, about the experience that are very, um, I feel I've grown from it. I've learned about myself. I want to be able to look back after this is all done, and I hope that this will all be over <laughs> sometime, um, and look back and think, you know, it wasn't a total waste of time. I actually got certain things done that maybe I wouldn't have done otherwise, and that's certainly happening for me right now. Um, I've been going for 35 years, playing 150 concerts a year, 100 to 150 concerts a year, constantly on the go, without any real breaks in the last really I'd say 25 30 years um uh since I was very young and and uh I love doing that and that's why I never took a break and um but I had a lot of things on my list like someday when I have time I'll do this and this and I'll learn this and finally I'm having time which is a, it's a weird sensation to wake up without an alarm and have time on my hands and, and um I'm I'm sort of finally getting the grasp on how to handle this type that I'm not used used to it. So are you missing touring then and playing as you normally do? Or is it like you said, you're really embracing this time off to finally do all those things that you always had on your list as one day I'll do that when I've got time. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's the the weird part since I've been performing so often for so long, uh, which I've been loving, is that I'm not missing it right now. I've got a month now. Uh, I was supposed to go, I'd be in Europe and tour and all um, I had just come back from a 17 city tour in 20 days. So it was crazy. And I was going to have to jump on a plane and go to Europe for another one. And um, th that was canceled. The Europe part was canceled. And so, um, 
I'm, I'm actually, I have to say I'm enjoying not having the pressure. Uh, I didn't even realize how much pressure it was putting on my body, basically touring and, and going out on stage is constant fight or flight, uh, adrenaline, which mm-hmm. I, I sort of addicted to, but I'm, I'm sort of really enjoying not having that. Um, my pulse rate is, is according to my watch is like 56 <laughs> per minute, which I don't think I ever let, let it get to be that point. So, um, and I'm, I'm waking up every day and working not on things that I need to do for tomorrow, but on things that I just, you know, practicing my violin, um, learning pieces that I've always wanted to learn and just learning for the joy of learning. And it's, it's just an incredible experience. So, um, I am appreciating that aspect. Mm. And uh, just for our listeners, I'm just going to give them a bit of background on you. So you've had a career, like you said, spanning more than 30 years as a violinist, chamber musician, recording artist, conductor and a director. And um, your accolades and achievements are vast. You know, you've performed with practically every major orchestra in the world. You're a a soloist, recitalist, chamber musician. You've won a Grammy, uh, all sorts. You've got, you know, over 900,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. So um, just to give our readers a quick one minute intro, I uh, found your sizzle reel, which is amazing. And people might recognize you being introduced here by people such as um, Barack Obama and uh, it's Tom Hanks, isn't it? So I'm just going to play this for a sec and then we'll get into the chat. Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, Violin Master, Joshua Bell, 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 world famous Grammy winning, one of the greatest violinists in the world, one of the greatest musicians on the planet. You're nominated and you're you're performing tonight. Several Grammys, an Oscar, and big successes in the classical music charts. People magazine's list of the most beautiful people. A musician who's won the hearts of teens all over the world. (laughs) Telly. All right. Joshua Bell, you're okay on that thing. Was that you or no? Is it Sesame Street in the end? I think so. I'm only hearing the audio of it, but yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that uh, ego reel in a, in a long time. I was going to say, it must be very strange for you to uh, listen to that yourself, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it was someone from Sesame Street there in the end. Yeah, I actually needed this ego boost after uh, looking at myself in the mirror this morning after... <laughs> <laughs> in uh, seclusion for so long it's not looking good um, um, don't worry we're all rocking the working from home look uh, audio only calls all the way Josh <laughs> <laughs> so what's it like um, apart from being you know maybe a bit awkward but hearing that back do you, are all your achievements like that such a blur well I've been uh, professionally playing since I was 14 but in this business you really got to start a lot earlier than that and luckily my parents gave me a violin when I was four oh, wow. and um, so yeah I started touring professionally when I was 14 years old and, and uh, started making records when I was about 18 years old um, uh, for Decca Records and then Sony after that And um, but yeah my career I've been incredibly lucky you know I'm doing what I love to do and, and uh, I've gone into all kinds of Tangents, you know, using my violin, I've done gotten to work on films. Um, one of them was was the Oscar 
film, um, uh, The Red Violin, which is an amazing project, mm. um, which uh, got me interested in that, in, in, in film and doing music for film. So I've done a fair amount of that. Uh, I've embraced uh, technology in various ways, which, mm. which I love. And always looking for new uh, things. Um, but yeah, but I, I feel very, very lucky to have, to be doing, you know, my passion for, for a living. And, uh, and during these times, actually, uh, although I'm not touring and so I'm not making any money for a while uh, from that, um, at least I can work for myself. I can get up every morning and go in the studio and practice and do my job. You know, I'm not earning from it. It's still, I feel like I'm doing my, doing my job and learning and which is what uh, an artist gets to do. They get to be a student and learn their whole life. So I do feel count myself lucky. Yeah. And you've obviously, um, like you said, you had your first uh, deal by 18. So uh, did you always know that you wanted to be a violinist or was there ever some other career that you thought, oh, I could do that? Or did you just fully know that's it, music's for me? Well, my very first, uh, thinking about it now as we're doing this, Interview. My very first radio interview, I was actually seven years old um, because I was playing with the local symphony in Bloomington, Indiana, where I grew up. And it was a uh, kids, kids radio program. And they asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I did not say the violin. Uh, I did not choose the I said uh, a detective or scientist. Ooh. So that was at one point, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> and uh, if uh, detective, maybe not. But scientist, uh, I've always... I could see myself doing that I, if I weren't didn't have music. I love science. I love uh, physics. Uh, um, all this talk about science now, if I could imagine myself certainly not as a doctor, on the, not doing that, but I can imagine being like a research. Uh, I love research and studying about science and biology, and it's mm-hmm. actually quite fascinating reading so many articles now about what's happening with this awful virus, but. I could imagine myself being in that field, but you know, you got to choose. And, and um, music was became very clear when I was about twelve years old. I said, "That's it. I definitely want to be a musician." Yeah. I found a, a mentor, a teacher that was a very old man that became my mentor. Uh, his name was Joseph Ingold, and and through him, I just thought, "This is the life I want." And mm-hmm. um, and I've done I've done it. And what were some of the key things that he taught you? Well, he. He was a violinist, a great violinist. He was 70 years old when I was 12, when I started studying with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just basically embraced the violin and music as more than just a job. It was just his way of life, as the way he lived and breathed it. So by being around someone like that and just it, the joy that he experienced from it, um, I just made, it was infectious, you know. And, and uh, then when I was 14, I started winning a couple of competitions and then they started actually paying me for it, which for the thing I love to do, uh, so I started even at that age saving up money, and I, you know, was able to buy my first sports car, you know, with my own money, and 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 I just sort of fell into it. I suddenly realized this is actually a profession as well, um, and uh, and it, and it grew grew from there. You know, it takes a certain type of personality to want to do this sort of thing, not to play music, but to the career that I have is I'm traveling constantly. I'm two hundred and some days. On the a year on the road, um, it's pressure, and I happen to thrive on that. But it's not a job for everyone. I don't think I think very few people would really embrace all aspects of what I do. But it just kind of suits my personality very well. Mm, and you've obviously released tons of material as well. So you've done over forty albums. So 
when composing music, what inspires you yeah. and, and when do you feel at your best artistically? Yeah. Well, first of all, that's one thing to, to, to although I do enjoy composing uh, a bit, the music that I play for the most part is, is written by, by is classical music. So that's, uh, it spans hundreds of years of music. So, um, you know, this morning I spent two hours practicing music in Bach, mm -hmm. Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, yeah, this is music written, uh, you know, 300 years ago. Um, and it's, an, uh, so, um, and I get inspired by different kinds of, you know, sometimes it's, 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 uh, Mozart, sometimes it's Bach, sometimes it's Prokofiev, sometimes it's modern music, uh, written by modern classical composers, um, you know, they all, it all inspires me in different ways, and, and um, uh, I enjoy even, I've even done music with uh, more modern, sort of pop, more popular music. Uh, you know, I've done collaborations with Sting and um, uh, Dave Matthews and, and also uh, jazz artists like uh, Chick Corea and mm -hmm. Bradford Marsalis and others. Um, and I learn a lot from playing with people from other genres as well. So, um, but basically everything is inspiration. With classical music, you're dealing with composers who are really a, uh, amongst the handful of, of greatest minds of their century. I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say that Bach or Mozart were one of really a, a few in an entire century of, of all of mankind to have that sort of level of genius. Mm. So, if that's not inspiration, you know, you're basically living and breathing the music and, they're, and, and being invited into the world of an incredibly great mind like them. And then you're trying to unravel and decipher what that great mind had, had in mind. And uh, it's an incredible experience. So that's, that in itself is incredibly inspiring every day. We have to talk about your violin. So just a bit of backstory on it. It's insane. So your violin is a Gibson X Huberman. Am I saying that right? Um, and yeah. it's uh, made in 1713 during uh, Stratovery's golden era. It's been stolen twice yeah. from the previous owner. And the final time the thief confessed the act on their deathbed uh, after hiding it in plain sight for many years. Um, so that's just crazy on its own. And then you purchased it for nearly $4 million <laughs> and um, sold your own, <laughs> you know, prized violin in the process to get it. So obviously you're using, and I'm guessing keeping it very close to you to this day. So what what was your connection to this violin? You know, were you really aware of it already? Like, why did you have to have it? Yeah, so it's a little misleading because it's sometimes referred to as the Gibson X Huberman. Gibson mm. um, happened to be an owner in the 19th century in England um, named Gibson. It has no connection to Gibson guitars. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Some people say, oh, yeah. So, and Huberman um, was one of the greatest violinists at the beginning of the 20th century who owned this violin. And it was from Huberman that it was stolen in 1936. He was actually performing at Carnegie Hall in New York, of all places, where it was taken from backstage and it disappeared for 50 years. Uh, so it's an amazing story itself, and there's a lot there's a lot more to the story. Someday I've thought about going to make a film about it because it's very fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, this, this thief, uh, who was, uh, was another violinist, but a sort of a, a gigging violinist in New York City who 
a young guy, maybe 20 years old, he snuck backstage and, and took the violin and escaped and um, ended up playing the violin himself for 50 years until on his deathbed he confessed to having stolen it. Um, he never tried to sell it, which is why it was never recovered. Um, he never showed it to anyone uh, out of fear that it might be. I mean, he never showed it to a violin expert mm. uh, or got it repaired or anything. So uh, when it was recovered in 1986, after he died, um, it uh, was restored over a period of a year or so of carefully restoring the varnish, removing the shoe polish that he had put on the varnish to cover it up to make it look grungy. Uh, and they took nine months to, re- to to remove that and uncover the beautiful varnish, which was still existing uh, underneath that. And it was still an incredibly valuable instrument. Um, and the world knew about the, the missing strat, but, um, and so it was a famous instrument. And I knew about it. I'd heard about it. Um, and I was had been told that it was one of the greatest sounding violins around and uh, so it came on the market in, in 2001 I was I was playing a concert at the proms at the Royal Albert Hall that night in London I went into the, the violin shop a famous violin shop Charles Beard shop and uh, I uh, I was in there for some other reason getting strings or something and they said you know the, the famous uh, Ubermann violin strand is in our possession right now we're selling it would you it's, it's, would you like to try it? I tried it and I fell in love with it so quickly. I was able to, um, I actually even played it that night uh, at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, uh, Bernstein West Side Story Suite, uh, which is very complex and I don't even know what I was thinking. You know, usually it takes months to get to a new violin, but I was so enamored that I played that night at the Royal Albert Hall and never looked back. I found a way to sell my other Stradivarius and purchase this one and and uh, it's, it's, I've had it ever since. And uh, I know it sounds like a lot of money, and it was. I mortgaged my life away for it, but it's uh, actually the value is now several times what I paid for it. So at least my kids will have a good, nice inheritance from it. Yeah, they sure will. And I was wondering, um, does it go everywhere with you, given how clearly stealable it is? Well, you know, it's, I, the only analogy I can make, because it's, it's not replaceable, and yes, it's valuable, but it's, since I mentioned my kids, it's like having a child. Um, a child is not replaceable, um, and you have to have it with you or being babysat. And, um, you know, there's always dangers of things happening, breaking it or dropping it. But just the same thing with a baby. You can drop a baby and, as well. And you, after a while, you don't fear every second you're going to drop your child. You know, you just, you, life goes on and you, I'm not neurotic about it, but I'm very, very careful. Yeah, I can totally understand why. What a fantastic instrument to have and to use every time. Is this the violin you play on exclusively and every day, just in your home? Every day, exclusively. Um, and since we're talking about the value, it, it's, of course, it's valuable because of its, it's made by Stradivarius. There are very few made. Um, he's the name in violin maker, so there's a lot of collector's value. Unfortunately, because... Um, you know, most of these are now not even played. Many, at least I'd say half of them are just collections not being played at all, which is kind of sad. Um, but um, but there's a reason why we musicians want them. We don't just want to collect them. They, it's, it's, it's an amazing sort of mystery why um, these violins made at that particular time of history in that particular area, Cremona, Italy, why... Um, and there are other makers like Guarneri and Amati 
all from the same town of Cremona, Cremona that made these these instruments that are um, sound so special. We can't really figure out uh, what it is, but it it's um, it, it it does make a huge difference. They're wonderful modern instruments, um, and they sound good and just equally loud on the ear and, and make a nice sound, but there's a quality of sound and uh, in the overtones of the instrument that um, is very hard to figure out why these old instruments are like that. And so it's, it, it does make a difference. And it's the only thing, only example I can think of in any field where the tool, a tool like this um, from, you know, hundreds of years before uh, out does anything that we could make today. I, I can't think of any um, parallel in any other field. And it's pretty quite remarkable. Mm, all the more special as well. And no, just with all our technology and all we know, you'd think we would be able to to uh, replicate that, and, and we just can't. Well, speaking of which, um, there is a way that we've, um, you know, obviously musicians would love to just be able to even just play this violin, obviously, because they won't be able to because they're, they're so rare. Um, but you've worked with a manufacturer called Embertone to create the Joshua Bell violin, which is a sampler basically created for, you know, producers, engineers and artists, composers. And it's a way for people to sort of replicate playing your violin remotely using their laptops. So, I mean, how did you even do this? Did you have to record everything note by note, different styles of holding a note? Can you talk us through that process? Yeah, basically for Embertone, I, I I had to go in a studio and just create as many sounds as I could on my instrument, different ways. The, the beauty of a violin is that um, there's so many ways you can make a sound uh, subtlety. It's kind of like the human voice is, is very subtle. The amount of ways you can nuance a sound in your voice um, is is incredible. That's why the human voice is so compelling in music. Mm-hmm. Um, but the violin is the closest thing to that. And so I, the way you use your bow on the string, you can create so many different types of articulations or your fingers on the string with, with uh, plucking the strings, et cetera. So basically I, I set out to do as many, it took several days of just doing, you know, playing up a scale up and down from the lowest to the highest notes in every way I could. And they cataloged this, they recorded this, and then they'd have this digital sample of this. And so then now composers can access this and uh, make music in that way, in a way that's, I, I think, so much more realistic than what had been shown to me in the past. You know, I've had composers write me music and they say, here's an example of what I've written for you to give you an idea of the piece. And it's it's a kind of awful canned uh, string sound that doesn't give me a very good idea of the piece. It makes me not like the piece very much because it doesn't sound... But now with this tool, it's actually really cool because people have sent me a version using this, they sent me the other day uh, the last moon of the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto being played, and I, I recognized that it's not, first of all, I, at first I thought it was a recording, then I realized something was a little, it can't be a recording. Um, it sounded a little bit like, it sounded like my sound, but it wasn't me playing, it's not the way I would have interpreted the music, so it was really odd, but it, but it was amazing how realistic it sounds. I think it's a great tool for composers and people who work with music uh, digitally. And it gives people, like we said, this opportunity to try and play this instrument, you know, the best way they possibly can, which is, you know, they're not going to be able to get their hands on it, literally, are they? So let's just play a little clip now of Empertone's Joshua Bell violin just to hear how it sounds. (laughs) 
how does that sound to you as a professional violinist um, in comparison to your normal style? I can hear some of the timbres of my violin through that. Again, it's not me playing it, but the violin itself um, has some similar similar sound. It's really how one uses the tool. You know, there's so much that you can do with it. In this case, they they were overlaying so many other instruments and things that it kind of diluted a little bit the um, the pure sound of, of my violin. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you're probably the best judge on that, aren't you? So in terms of the other users that have developed their own recordings using this software, um, you know, how many are we talking are using this? Do you get these files sent to you? Are you tagged in, you know, videos that people do? Do they want your opinion on it and that kind of thing? I don't know exactly how many people are using the tool. I've gotten some, I've seen some nice reviews of it and I've had some people, someone sent me the other day an actual video of, playing at the keyboard live, like in real time using this tool um, and, and and playing on the keyboard. And yet the sound coming out with my, was, a, was using one of the sounds for my violin, a, a very short articulation. And it sounded really, really, really cool. Um, and it sounded like a violin playing, even though he was playing on the keyboard. Um, so there's a lot of things and you can, that, uh, that one can do as a, composer now that i know what it can do uh, it's made me think that maybe there are even more things i could do with it um and more sounds i could make for a violin now that i know its potential i think i might go for version 2.0 sometime soon okay cool well i know there'd be like tons of violin players out there that would love to use it so um well why not now you know you've probably got a little bit of time on your hands haven't you josh <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's the funny thing it's i have time on my hands but but it's at the end of the day i still I'm disappointed by all the things I didn't get done. So uh, it, it still seems endless, the amount of things that I want to get done during this time, and uh, which is a good thing. I'm, I'm never, never bored. Um, my own kids were were asked uh, to send in videos to their school about what they're doing during their quarantine time, and half the kids in their class said, I'm just so bored. And I said to my kids, you have no excuse to be bored. There's a million things you can be doing and learning, and so I don't want to ever hear you, you utter those words. <laughs> Okay, that sounds like good advice. Um, and what for you? Obviously, you've achieved so much. So, do you have a particular career highlight, or maybe I should say highlights, to give you a few options? I would say the tour that I just came back from uh, was one of the great highlights. Um, it's funny uh, because I just finished the t- we managed to finish the tour in California. It's with my orchestra. What I'm enjoying most these days is directing and playing uh, with the Academy of Saint Martin in the Fields, which is the London-based orchestra that has made more recordings than I think any other orchestra mm. for 50 years under Sir Neville Mariner. He was their figurehead, and I'm, I'm his successor. Um, and we came back from a U.S. tour. We managed to just finish the tour in California right as the viruses and the things were clamping down. And um, But I was able to, you know, playing uh, Paganini Concerto and then directing the, my first Brahms symphony with the orchestra, it was a revelation just to get to do that. Um, so because it's so recent, I felt like this is like one of the highlights of my life. Mm-hmm. But um, looking back, I mean, there, you know, there are certain milestones that stick out for me. Um, um, my debut when I was 14 with, with the Philadelphia Orchestra playing Mozart. Um, that was my first big concert, and I'll never forget that. And, mm-hmm. Or playing in Carnegie Hall, where my violin was stolen in 1936 playing for the first time at Carnegie Hall when I was 17 or, or actually even playing at the, in, uh, in London at the Royal Albert Hall in 1970. I was 22 years old and, and um, 
playing for the first time in that amazing place, Beethoven Violin Concerto. That those that's one that stands out for me. So I don't know. It's hard to say uh, highlights uh, exactly, but those are just a few. And I saw, um, you know, with all of this success and all these amazing highlights that you've said, um, you did a sort of experiment in 2007 where you performed in a subway station, I think, in Washington, and pretty much no one stopped, whereas days before you'd sold out a theatre in Boston. So what was that um, experience like for you to kind of have that reaction or non-reaction when you're used to, you know, setting up big rooms? Uh, well, would that be a low light then? I don't know. No, not a low um, light. It's just an interesting <laughs> experiment, isn't it? Does, does it mean, do no, people not recognise talent in an unexpected context? Or, you, you know, they're obviously not your hardcore fans, probably well, people that get off the train. No, that's that's. I'm, I'm joking because that, that really that was the idea. It was not about. First of all, it was never about recognizing me in any particular way, but it was just about the context. Um, and when the Washington Post approached me about doing it, I thought it would be something fun to do. The reaction was as pretty much as I expected because I know so much of classical music and live music, and really why we need live music. Uh, and why we love live music is that is that magic and interaction with the audience and the. And the and the and the especially classical music where you need utter silence besides the music itself, um, and you need you need the an active brain of the listener who's really uh, hanging on every note. There's this amazing magic that happens with classical music. I say classical music in particular because it's because um, it's not meant to be ever be background music or just mm. to be danced to or whatever. It's it's um, um, it's it needs a kind of concentration. So I knew that if I were going to play Bach's Chaconne in in the subway station, uh, metro station, while people are shuttling to work, I knew it would not have the kind of impact that it should. Um, so it was kind of interesting. Um, you know, the, the the newspaper they followed all the people that did decide to stop and listen, and they followed up with people who walked straight by without listening, and they interviewed them and said, "Did you even hear what was going on?" And, you know what? What kind of impact did it make? And so it was, it was. It made for an interesting article at the time. What I didn't expect is that it became, would become kind of viral, and it would be. This has now been twelve, thirteen years since it happened, and I still get asked even now as we're talking about yeah. it. Now, <laughs> I still talk about it. Uh, so that came as a surprise, but um, but frankly, I've had people come to my concert and say, "You know what? I've never been to a classical concert in my life." Uh, but I read about that, that article. Or I saw someone sent me a video, and I thought, you know, I'll come check it out for myself. So if that if that happens, uh, I have no complaints because uh, uh, I am I, a major pro- proponent of uh, classical music for people that to I I wanted to reach people that uh, that may not think it's for them or maybe think feel uncomfortable going to a classical concert or they may not enjoy it. Because I truly believe uh, that we, there's a much wider audience out there that can really love and appreciate classical music, and we find that out when we have movies like Amadeus or um, uh, or other ways that people listen to music and they think, oh, maybe I do love classical music. And so if I can be that guy, you know, through uh, doing an experiment like that, then I'm happy. Yeah, and it's great, like you say, you're introducing um, classical music to people that perhaps wouldn't have heard it before. And, you know, might not think it's for them, but they've never really sat and experienced it until that time. So I think that's really lovely, actually. 
Well, I like to find ways to do that without without dumbing down the music, and that's really important to me because there are ways to try to. I think it's misguided to think, you know, uh, I think more people can appreciate Beethoven. So let's add a drum beat and let's do this. And let's, you know, you don't need that. If you, if you, uh, uh, the proms, is, since I mentioned it already, is, is one of the great examples uh, where people fill up 7,000 seats night after night to hear pure classical music. And young people who, uh, they, you know, stand up and they feel comfortable. It's a lot of it is the environment. And you play a Beethoven symphony there. It's, it's got as much. It's it's got as much volume and excitement and action as any rock concert. And people realize that when they. So you don't need to mess with the music to reach people. You just need to find ways to reach them in, in ways that they feel comfortable with the surroundings. And I, so I really, I really believe that. And with so many achievements, is there anything else that you feel you haven't accomplished yet? Any place you'd love to play, or anything that's unachieved for you at the moment? Or have you kind of done uh, all the main ticks? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've played with most of the, ma- the orchestras in the world. And they're still, you know, musicians and, uh, I'd like to work with. But it, really, for me, it's um, it's so vast, the amount of uh, music and repertoire written for the, my instrument that I'll never get to all of, all of the great works that have been, um, I guess you can equate to an actor who hasn't done all the Shakespeare plays, you know, yeah. a theater actor. <laughs> Uh, there's just so much rep repertoire that I want to dig into, and uh, and now that I'm conducting and directing, now that opens up a whole other library of sym- symphonies and things I want to put my stamp on and and, and explore. You know, and and then as I would love to be more of a composer as well. I've been, uh, so that's something I'm dabbling in. I would like to have a have written a, a solo violin sonata that future generations might play of mine. You know, that's sort of a dream goal. Mm. Um, but we'll, we'll see. So there's plenty of, plenty of things to do. And I, and I hope I have some, uh, uh, some years left. I mean, my job, you know, you can't work till you're not in your nineties. Mm. So, um, I feel I still have time. You've got plenty of time. So thank you so much for joining us today. And it was great to hear your story and, you know, about your violin and just everything that you've achieved so far. So, uh, we wish you the best, you know, during this situation and, getting through this virus and you know i guess we'll be seeing you on the other side when you go back to performing again thank you so much for your time and yeah you be healthy and thanks for doing this and, and uh find those silver linings mm-hmm. that's the thing we can do yeah yeah exactly all right take care of yourself okay thank you so much josh headliner radio supporting the creative community